Well, good evening, everybody. Would it be okay if we just took a moment and we asked for God's presence to be with us? Now, I get it. Some of you are kind of maybe new to the church thing, but this is normal for us. We come, or maybe we should come, expecting to meet with God in church, right? Okay, so that's my hope for tonight. And so if we just take one moment and just pause and invite him uh, to be with us, uh, and then we'll jump forward, okay? Uh, So Father in heaven, uh, we are grateful for your love and for your mercy and for all that you have done. And God, I pray right now in this space uh, that you would meet with us once again. God, that you would visit with us. Uh, Reveal your heart to us. Use me in spite of me. Use me in in spite of all of my flaws and in spite of my lack of everything. Uh, God, they do not need to hear from me. They need to hear from you. So speak, oh God, for your child is listening. Amen. Amen. Now, last week, we began to speak of this idea that most of us have a hard time finding God, that it's sort of a Where's Waldo experience for us. Remember that? We talked about this idea that there are these little Where's Waldo books, and Waldo is on every page, he is in every scene, but he is awfully hard to find sometimes. And many of us, if not most of us, feel that that is the God-man experience, right? That God is out there somewhere that we hear that he wants this relationship with us, that he desires this relationship, that he wants us to know him and to be known by him, to love him and to be loved by him, but we have an awful hard time finding him. And sometimes it's almost impossible to feel that he is near, to sense that his his presence is, is near. And so along the way, because this relationship seems so elusive, we, we develop these kind of uh, excuses along the way. And, and a lot of times, because it is so hard to find God at times, we, we begin to not try. We begin to just go through motions. We begin to just show up in church, sing a few songs, give a few dollars, or, or to think about God every once in a while, and we just become lethargic in the relationship. We begin to make excuses all together for not really having this thriving relationship, right? And, and so maybe some of us, we, the excuses begin to take shape and we go, well, you know, none of my friends are really doing the whole God thing and so I'm not gonna do the whole God thing or, or maybe I'll just, you know, uh, try the God thing when I get a little older or the classic, hey, all those church people are hypocrites anyway, so why do I wanna go and be among them? Right, you've done this, I think all of us have. Because this relationship with God seems so difficult to master, so difficult to grab onto, we just start making excuses. Now, if we were to apply some of those same excuses uh, of why we don't pursue God or we don't you know, participate in the life of his church. Uh, if we applied those to other areas of life, I think we would think it's rather comical. So let's just do this for a moment. I started thinking about some of the excuses we made uh, for not running after God, and I applied them to something that almost all of us choose to do, and that's eat. That's eat. So this is what it would look like if we applied some of the same excuses to the idea of eating. The first one would be this, is I don't eat anymore because I was forced to eat as a child. And I'm not doing that anymore, right? Uh, Number two would be, I I don't eat anymore because people are hypocrites and they really aren't hungry. But they eat anyways, right? Number three is, I don't eat anymore because there are so many different kinds of foods and I can't decide which one's right, right? Uh, Number four is, I don't eat anymore because I used to eat, but I got bored and so I just sort of stopped. Hmm. Number five is, I don't eat anymore because I only eat on special occasions like Easter and Christmas, right? 
Or, or number six is I, I don't eat anymore because none of my friends will eat with me. So we just don't. Uh, number seven is I, I don't eat anymore because I'll start eating when I get older. Right? I mean, see how silly this becomes? We, we stop this pursuit of God, but if we applied the same excuses that we use in our relationship with God to any other area of life, it would utterly fall apart. But we go on and we say, I don't eat anymore because I really don't have the time to eat, right? Or I don't eat anymore because I don't believe that eating does anybody any good. It's just a crutch for them. You've heard all these excuses for church. And of course, I don't eat anymore because restaurants and grocery stores are only after your money, right? I mean, you've heard all this said about church. But it's true that if we apply it to any other area of our life, it would, those excuses would literally fall apart. Well, this week we're talking about how, how there is a choice to be made in the God-man relationship. That you have a choice to make in the God-man relationship. That you have to somehow show up. Last week we began to, to speak about how this God-man relationship began and it began in the garden with Adam. You remember this story? We talked about this, right? And Adam screws it up. Adam turns from God. He, he rebels and he chooses this thing called sin. He becomes wayward in his relationship with God. And, and, and what does it say? It says that even though God knows what Adam has done, and even though God sees it all and experiences it all with Adam, he, he shows up to the garden anywhere, anyways. But what does it say about Adam? Adam hides. Adam thinks that somehow because he's broken this relationship that this thing called guilt and sin has entered into him, that he can hide from God. But God shows up and says, Adam, Adam, where are you? I want this relationship to continue. I want this relationship to grow and I, I know that you screwed it up. I know that you turned, but I'm not turning from you. I know that you've ran, but I'm not running from you. And so God shows up in the garden. He says, where are you? Now, let me show you a picture that I've shown here before, but it is perhaps one of the most famous paintings in the history of the entire world. It's called the, uh, the Creation of Adam. And, and of course, this is uh, one of the works of Michelangelo, and it's found on, this, uh, on, the, on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Now, this is absolutely amazing because it's a part of, of a matrix of a whole bunch of other paintings that all come together to tell the story of the God-man relationship. So if we were to back this photo out, and you would see this. This is the entirety of the ceiling. And, and, the, and the God reaching toward Adam and Adam reaching toward God is in the middle of it all. It stands in the middle and it tells a story. Now, this is an amazing thing. You think about this uh, chapel ceiling. It's called the Sistine uh, Chapel and it was built in the uh, 1470s, over 500 years ago. Now, think about that for a moment. 500 years ago, this ceiling is 40 feet wide, 130 feet uh, long, and it is at the top of the curve of the ceiling, it's over 60 feet from the ground. Built in the 1400s. Built in the, fort. did you hear that? Built in the 1400s. And we can't seem to manage to get a roof on our house, right? And they did this. And, and, and the painting alone, think about this. It took Michelangelo four solid years to paint this ceiling. There's 5,000 square foot of ceiling. 5,000 square foot, that's huge. And it took Michelangelo four solid years. Now go back to the, to the screen of, of, of Adam 
It's called the creation of Adam. Now, I'll just look at this. This picture, I think, says it all about the God-man relationship. It, it reveals the heart of God and, listen, and the choice of man. In this one picture, it reveals the heart of God and the choice of man. Notice the hand of God is stretched toward Adam and his, and his fingers are slightly turned upward and, and it's like he's doing all of the work to reach toward Adam and he's come as far as he can and as close as he can to Adam. And then you see Adam. His hand is, is just lazily responding. It's, it's just sort of there. And it's like God has made all of the effort. It's like God has made all of the work, has done everything to bridge this gap, to show up. And Adam, he's left with this choice only to lift his finger to touch God, to meet with God, to be with God. And it's more than an incredible painting, right? It's an incredible picture of us and our relationship with God. Like we talked about last week, that, that God has done everything to come toward us. We call this the Emmanuel principle, that God bridged the gap and, and he speaks into our life in all of these simple and gentle ways. And sometimes we go, uh, go through life and we completely uh, do not notice them. But God is reaching. And it only takes you and me to decide, to choose, to move toward him. Now, it was in Louisiana way back in 1982, there was a, um, a, an incredible court case that really took the nation by storm, and it never happened in American history before. Uh, it, was the, uh, it was the death row case of a man who had murdered an entire family, and his lawyers were working like crazy to find a pardon for him or to get him out of this sentence, but he was sentenced to die in the gas chambers of Louisiana. And it was 11.30 in the evening, the night of his execution, which was supposed to happen at midnight. And then, almost shockingly, a pardon from the governor of Louisiana came through. At 11.30 at night, the man killed an entire family. But for some reason, the governor chose to pardon this man through the efforts of his lawyers. Now, what was interesting was when they told the man at around 11.40 that this pardon came through, he refused the pardon. And he chose to go through the death penalty anyways. Interesting. So they put him to death at midnight. And, but what's interesting to me is what happened afterwards across the nation. A fierce legal battle ensued in the state of Louisiana. And, and the question was, was the man pardoned because the governor pardoned him? Or does the pardon only take effect when you choose to accept the pardon? And the legal answer became that a pardon is only valid when the one being pardoned actually accepts it as a gift, as a pardon. And, and friends, this choice to lift a finger toward God, to accept the pardon of God, to accept the grace of God, the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God that has been extended towards you only takes effect when you choose to lift a finger toward him, when you choose to accept his goodness, his grace, his pardon toward you, it only takes effect 
when you choose to move toward him. The, the scripture says that, that this relationship with God was initiated by God. It's not because you or I woke up one day and go, hey, I'd just like to be right with God. No, no, no. Everything within you and me runs from God. Anybody ever notice that? Come on. You ever notice that about you? I've noticed it about me. Everything in me is wired for self. Everything in me is wired for things that are unholy. But God chooses to reach into my life. He chooses to reach into your world, into my world. And he extends the hand of grace toward us. It says that it's not because you and I woke up one day and we wanted to get it all right with God, but that God has done all the reaching and all the work and all of the giving and he's extended it toward us. As a matter of fact, this is how it says in the book of Romans. Listen to this. this is, I want you to think about the, the gravity of God's love for you. And I, listen, I get it. There's some in this room that you're not sure you've ever experienced God's love. You're not even sure if God's even real, but I just want you to know what, what we believe about the gravity of God's love toward you. It's found in the book of Romans. So Paul is writing this, and this is a man who uh, spent many years of his life just wayward away from God, just hostile toward all things that were holy, all things that were good. Just a murderous, venomous person. And he discovers the grace of God in his life, changed his whole life. And he eventually writes these words. Listen to this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for who? For the, for the really good people in the world. No, it's just for the ungodly people in the world. Pause. That's all of us. That's you and me. Oh no, I'm a church person. Come on. Come on. Who are we kidding? Who among us is perfect? Who among us has it all together? Who among us can walk on water? Who among us is sinless? Who among us is godly on our own? Not me. And my guess is, not you. Not you. And this is what Paul says. That when we were so powerless to do any good in our life, Christ died for the ungodly. Then it says this, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. You get what he's saying, right? He says, you know, let's just be honest. We're not willing to lay our lives down for very many people, but if you show me a really good, really, really good person, you might choose to die in that person's place. Very rare though, very, very rare. And then it says this, but God, woo, But God, he changes that. But God, he does something about that. But God is different. God chooses something different. God reaches toward us even when we don't reach toward him. It says, but God, he demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still, what? Sinners, Christ died for us. Us. It's like God has weighted the scales. He's tipped heaven toward earth. He's closer than we think. He is close. But he says that you and me, we have to respond. We have to move toward him. And that's even why some of you are even in this church building tonight. 
Because you're trying to do that. You're trying, I'm guessing, to move toward him. There has to be something in our heart that moves toward him. Now listen, what, I'm going to tell you a story. One of the more striking stories that comes out of the life of Christ, it's recorded in the book of Luke. Luke was this skeptic. Luke was this uh, um, he, he was maybe an agnostic, you would call it. Somebody who wasn't sure what he believed about God and Jesus and all that kind of stuff. So he follows Jesus around and he, and he ends up interviewing all these people who walked with Jesus and did life and had interacted with Jesus. And he ends up writing an account called the Gospel of Luke, the, the truth according to, to Luke, right? And, and so Luke records a story that emerges from the life of Jesus, and it's very, very interesting. Uh, maybe you, you've heard of this before, but it's found in Luke chapter 10, so if you've got a Bible, you can cruise over there, that'd be cool. Um, but it's the story of Mary and Martha. Now, Mary and Martha, they have this relationship with, with Jesus through their brother named Lazarus. So Jesus apparently was friends with Lazarus and introduces Mary and Martha to Jesus through this. Now, we also learn that Mary and Martha uh, were single sisters who lived together. Now, we don't know if they're old age or if they're like old maids. We really don't know that story. But all we know is that they're sisters who lived together and they, they were unmarried. And, and Jesus has this interaction with them. And it's an incredible uh, story that we, we, and you may have, be familiar with this, but we learn that Jesus decides to visit Mary and Martha to do dinner with them, to have this social occasion with them, right? And, and we're going to learn that this causes a fraction in Mary and Martha's relationships. They, they take this visit from Jesus in totally opposite ways. Now, you may have heard this story before, but I just want you to listen with, you know, kind of a fresh set of ears um, because we're going to learn um, that as Jesus enters the village of Bethany, that's their hometown, and, and he comes in, he visits Mary and Martha, and, and again, they were unmarried, and, and this is a big deal that, that a man would go to the home of two unmarried sisters especially the man named Jesus, who was a very famous rabbi, a teacher, a religious leader in his community. This was a very odd thing. And so he shows up, and, and the scripture says that as he shows up, uh, there is this reaction where there is a meal that has to be prepared. And so Martha, we learn, gets right to work preparing the meal. Like, I don't know how it would be at your home, but, but like she goes, oh my, Jesus is here. I gotta make some dinner. Right? You can't have the rabbi, the teacher, Jesus, in your home and not feed the guy, right? But Mary's approach is totally different. Mary, we learn, just goes and sits with Jesus and hangs out with Jesus. Two completely different reactions. Now, I want you to think about how this would look a little bit. Um, you can see what's coming here because there's a fight coming. One's doing all the work and one's having all the fun. Can you see this? One's doing all the work and the other is simply having all the the fun. Now, let me, let me just say it like this. Now, I don't know how it would be in your home, but let's just say um, you're, you're at home and you're all just hanging out and, and there's like a knock on the door and it's like the governor or it's like the president coming to your house for dinner. Or, or let's just ratchet it up a little bit if the president ain't good enough. Uh, let's say Bono from U2 shows up at your door, okay? Or some of you younger peeps in the room, maybe it's Justin Bieber, shows up at your door. Now, now listen, uh, like, this is how it'd be in my house. It'd be like, whoa, Bono, hold on a minute. Shoo. Clean the house, hurry up. And, and you, you, can, you know what would happen? Like in my house, if you're like me at all, you'd be like, you're doing this and you clean up this and you do this. And, and we're going to work. And like five minutes later, we're like, 
hey, how you doing? Want a Diet Coke? We're going to have dinner in just a few minutes. Come on in, right? And so in my case, if Bono was walking into my house, I would be like gawking. Right? Anybody with? I mean, I'd be like mesmerized. I would be like, Bono is in my house. I'd be like, here's my guitar, sing me a song, right? That's just how it would be. My wife on the other hand, she'd say, stop gawking, get in here and help me make dinner, right? It'd be totally opposite. And this is what was going on. And, and, and so you can, you can see this, this coming down the pipe. And, and, and in this case, Martha is all ramped up because she's doing the work and Mary is gawking at Jesus. Mary is mesmerized by Jesus. That's what we're, like, she's starstruck, right? She's like, the rock star has entered the building. And she's starstruck by this. And so Mary, in a moment, or excuse me, Martha, in a moment of frustration, she just ratchets it all the way to the top. She lets it all hang out there. She just lets it all come out. And she says this. She goes right to the top. She's like, this is unfair. This is uncalled for. I do all the work. It's been like this since we were kids. It's ridiculous. She's lazy. She's out of control. She's so irresponsible. And so she says, I'm going to settle this score right now. You have Jesus in the house. You can settle a lot of scores. Right? And so she goes right to Jesus. And this is what she says. She says, Lord... Don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. He just goes right to the top, or she goes right to the top. Tell her. Tell her she's wrong. Tell her she's got it all backwards. Tell her to do something. She's lazy, right? Balancing work and reflection is a tricky thing, isn't it? Isn't it? Come on. And that's what Mary and Martha had to figure out. They had to balance this. They were forced to figure this out because people in Western culture, in our culture, um, we're forced to live these very hurried, very scheduled, very busy lives. And for you and for me, our lives are filled with all kinds of activity. And I'm going to say most of it is good activity, right? We, we have to make dinner. We have to clean the house. We have to mow the lawn. We have to run our kids to soccer. We got to go pay bills. We got all this stuff. And most of it makes for a pretty good life along the way. But one of the, the demands of having a full schedule of activity is the art of prioritizing, right? It's the art of choosing what is the top priorities in your life. What is the top priority of your life? What really needs to fill your day? Because listen to me, friends, and you may want to write this one down. Success, listen, success isn't determined by how much we get done, but success is determined by getting the right things done, the best things done. In life, the most important things done. And success is often determined by being able to look at our list of things that are important, and it's the ability to decide what's really important and what needs to go down a little bit, what needs to go up the list, and what needs to be ran down the list, right? So, this account of Mary and Martha is, is about such priorities. It's a story of what is good versus what is better. It's, a, it's the idea of choosing what is good or, or are we going to choose what is really best. It, it's not about a story about getting stuff done. It's funny because over the years I kind of grew up in church, you know, and, and you hear this story taught from a lot of different angles and, and you hear somebody talk about it's a story of getting stuff done. No, it's not. 
It's not. And you hear other people, this gets really funny, you get other people, I've actually heard preachers use this as a contextual argument uh, to put women in their place in the home. You know, barefoot and pregnant and keeping the house. Amen. But it's not the point of the story. It's not the point of the story at all. As a matter of fact, if you were to go back through human history, this story, a lot of people have talked about this is the, uh, the idea of a role of a woman in the house, and, or maybe it's about how women handle stress and all that. It's not at all. This, these stories can be interchanged with the male character. It doesn't really matter because it's not a story about getting stuff done or priorities or stress or anything like that. It is the idea of a choice in your life. The story is a story of choosing. It is the story of deciding what is not only good, but what is best and what needs to go up the ladder. It is a story of prioritizing in your life. This account paints a picture of what it means to have fellowship in your life. It paints a picture of discipleship. It paints a picture of the art of following Jesus and how all along the way, there are all of these pressures and all of these things calling us, all of these things that are keeping us from touching the hand of God. And you have a choice in it. You have a choice to move some things down the ladder in order to pursue the best things. This is really a story about how uh, Jesus is, is, is not so much uh, stressing the, the merits of good activities uh, and how he, he's, he's stressing the idea that, that there are some things that simply outweigh other things. And if you are ever going to touch the hand of God, you have to figure it out. That's what it's about. So listen to this. Uh, it, it goes on. Um, and it says this in verse 39. It says that she has a sister. So Mary, Martha comes and says, Lord, what's her problem, right? And then it says, so she has a sister named Mary. And this is what Mary was doing. Who sat at the feet listening to what he said. So Mary has a different choice. Sometimes there's activity in her life. But sometimes this is about sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, what's interesting is by first read, you can just go, well, she's starstruck. That's all. It's like Bono has entered the building, right? And you're just starstruck and you're gawking at him. But this isn't it at all. As a matter of fact, um, Jesus is, is, is stressing something that was part of Jewish life. He was stressing something that was part of Jewish culture. Um, this phrase, uh, that the, at the Lord's feet, listening at the Lord's feet. Listen, Luke is writing to first century Jewish people who understand the art of listening, who understand the art of sitting and learning, the art of being taught and growing because of what you're taught. That's what's being stressed here. There's something big in this story, uh, and this exact phrase, listen, comes from hundreds, if not even thousands of years of Jewish tradition that esteemed the art of listening. And it was common that Jewish people, you know this, some of you people who've kind of looked into some of this stuff, you know that, 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 that Jewish people had this idea that one of the greatest privileges of life was to go and sit under a master teacher. 
that would go and learn from them and breathe deeply from them. As a matter of fact, there's an ancient Jewish saying that's literally thousands of years old. Now listen to what it says. It says, let your house be a meeting house for the sages, for the teachers, for the wise among you. So it says this ancient saying, it goes, let, let your house be a meeting house or a meeting place for the sages and sit among the dust or amidst the dust of their feet and drink their words with thirst. So you can see the tone changing. When Luke writes, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's not being lazy. We can think that in American culture or she's gawking or she's starstruck, but that's not it at all. This is a reference to the idea that sometimes we have to stop everything in our little, busy, crazy, out of control world and we have to go listen at the feet of the master. We have to go and learn about God. We have to go and purpose in our heart to grow, to worship, to move toward God. You hear me, friends? You getting this? You getting it? So, so, so listen, listen to this. Martha is not comfortable with this at all, and so uh, with Mary's approach to Jesus' visit at all, and, and, and so she's, you know, don't you, she says, don't you care? If you were to read through the text, you'd see, in Luke 10, you'd say, she says, don't you care about me? Don't you care? Pause. Of course Jesus cares. He's Jesus, right? But she's trying to ratchet this up to be something personal, me versus her. She's trying to make this something that it's not. And so she says, don't you care? Tell her, tell her. And she is literally hoping Jesus gets on her side. But Jesus' answer is amazing. It is so good. He says, Martha, Martha, twice. Sometimes even women need to be told twice, right? Thank you. Church is over. He says, Martha, Martha, and it's very interesting. If you were to go back into ancient writings, this is an amazing thing to learn. When the name was used twice, it's almost always indicative of a caring tone, of an empathetic tone. Now, me, I'm yelling, Isaac, Isaac, get over here! Not caring at all. But when writers of ancient literature would use the name twice, it was indicative to compassion. It was indicative to saying, I really care about you and I'm gonna tell you something that you're not gonna like. But you need to hear this. This is really important. Don't miss this. So Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. What's that one thing? Martha, Mar Martha, one thing is needed. It wasn't, Martha, get a grip on yourself. Martha, straighten up your act. Martha, don't you understand what's going on here? He's in pleading with her. He says, Martha, if you're not careful, you're going to miss the most important thing in the world. And then he says this, Martha, Martha, you are worried about many things, but only one thing is need, needed. Mary has chosen what is, what's this word? Better. Better. In this moment, and you have your moments, when the world is spinning and the world is chaos and the world is stressful, there are these moments 
that it is better to go to the feet of Jesus and to work harder than to try harder. It says, Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken from her. It won't be taken away. So Jesus is protecting this time and says, I'm gonna meet with her right here, right now. And Jesus shows up. When Jesus shows up, it wasn't like he just came by himself. It'd be like Bono showing up. There'd be a paparazzi, right? There is chaos in the home. And Jesus says, this is important. This is really important. And do not miss this. Reflection over busy. Worship over hustle. Peace over restlessness. That's his desire for us. Jesus says, um, some things can wait. Even good things can wait. It's more important for you to be with me than anything else because I want to be with you. I want to be with you. You you have to make some hard choices is what he's saying. He says you have to decide where to invest um, portions of your time, where uh, where to go, because it takes more than food or drink to fulfill you. It takes more than the stuff of life to fulfill you, what you can build with your hands, what you can make with your hands. It takes something more. It takes knowing and loving God. So he says, choose that. Choose that. Choose knowing and loving God over everything else, and it will go well for you. Now follow this. This language, Jesus used, he says, he, he says, there's one thing you need. Now Jesus is a smart cookie, right? And so he's referencing thousands of years earlier when a man named Moses wrote about what we need, what is most important. Here's what Moses writes um, back in the book of Deuteronomy. Listen to this. He says, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna. That's God's gift, his supply from heaven, his bread from heaven. He goes, so God humbled you, causing you to hunger. So he gives you these hunger pains for something more, right? And then he feeds you from manna from heaven. It's, it's, It's literal in this case. There was bread from heaven, but it was meant to show how God supplied our need. God supplied our need. It was meant to turn our hungry stomachs into hungry hearts toward God. Y'all hear this? That's what it's meant for. And then it says this. It says, uh, which neither you nor your fathers had known uh, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God or from the Lord. It was like Jesus was saying in a sense that Mary is preparing to eat the right meal. And Martha, what you're frying up in the kitchen isn't the right meal. It's simply not the right thing that you should be pursuing right now. It's like, how often do I come to visit, Martha? The meal can wait for a moment. Visit with me. He, he was saying she, uh, that she's made a move towards me, uh, that she made a choice that will endure forever. He's saying whoever chooses God chooses life. Whoever chooses life with God, reaches toward God, actually chooses a life that is fulfilled by God. And that all of your busy and all of your hurry and all of your work won't fulfill it, won't satisfy you. But if you choose to reach toward God, he will satisfy you. Here's how the book of 1 John records this relationship with God. It's very interesting. Uh, John, one of the early followers of Jesus, writes this. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, listen to this, God lives in him. God lives in him. Hmm. And he in God. When you move toward God, 
The God-man relationship changes. The door, the, 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 the gap, even though it is so close, it is finally bridged. When you move toward God and you humble your heart and you accept Jesus into your soul, when you accept him, when you decide to make him savior, when you decide to make him leader, when you decide to humble yourself and recognize that he is the forgiver of sin, that he is the holy one and that he is the one that is ultimately worth pursuing in life, he says that, the, that God will come and live in you and you will live in God. And some of y'all go, I can't find God. Who needs to move, God or you? You, me. We need to move toward him. Humble hearts, toward him. Because God says if we move toward him, he will live in us. Something will come alive in our soul and something will change inside of us and, and we will experience a whole new thing. Listen, friends, God is close to you. You have to choose to acknowledge Jesus. In order for God to come and live in you, though, it's your choice. You have to choose this. In 1923, let me, let me tell you, uh, there was an interesting thing that happened in, in history. In 1923, um, there was a meeting of some of the richest, most successful financiers on the planet at the time. Uh, these people controlled a significant percentage of the world's GDP of income. It was incredible. These were some of the richest men. At this meeting at the Edgewater Hotel in Chicago in 1923, there was Charles Schwab. Maybe you've heard that name before. Well, at the time, Charles uh, Schwab made his fortune in the steel industry. Another guy named was Samuel Insel. He was the president of the largest electric company in America at the time. Uh, Howard Hobson, he was the president of the largest gas company in America. Arthur Cotton was the most successful wheat speculator in the entire world. Richard Whitney was the president of the New York Stock Exchange. These were some pretty high-powered people. Albert Fall, he was on the president's cabinet in 1923. Leon Frazier, he was the owner of the International Bank of Settlements. Uh, a, a guy named Jesse Livermore, he, he was the greatest stock investor of his day, made a fortune. And Ivan Kruger owned one of the largest holding companies. Basically, a holding company is a company that owns a whole bunch of other companies. And, and Ivan Kruger had the largest holding company in the world at the time. So these people, they were wealthy and they celebrated uh, their wealth at, at the Edgewater Hotel with, with wine and drink and food and all that sort of things. And they were living large, celebrating all that they had achieved in this world. Now, listen to this. Just 25 years later, just fast forward 25 years later. Let me tell you about each of these men. 25 years later, Charles Schwab had died totally bankrupt. He had lived his last five years independency on his friends for his substance. Um, Samuel Insull, uh, he died a fugitive from justice, penniless in a foreign land. Howard Hobson, he went insane. Arthur Cotton, he died abroad. He too was totally broke upon his death. Richard Whitney, the, the most famous wheat speculator in the world at the time, spent uh, time in the Sing Sing prison because he evaded taxes and went to jail for fraud. Uh, Albert Fall too went to prison for money-related fraud charges and was pardoned just before his death just before his death, and, and listen to this, Jesse Livermore, Ivan Kruger, and Leon Frazier all died by suicide. They took their lives because they figured out that there was no hope in the stuff of this world. There was a brokenness in each of these men because they figured out somewhere along the way, or maybe they didn't figure out, that there is no hope 
in the stuff of this world. Friends, is it possible? Is it possible to gain the whole world but lose your soul? Is it? Jesus said it was. Jesus said it's possible for you and me to run after all sorts of things in life and to be busy, busy, busy and to achieve it all. But at the end, it's possible to lose your soul. And so Jesus comes along and he says, he says you better guard your soul. He says for you and for me. He says if you want to come after me, you must deny your very self. Take up your cross and follow me. The choice is yours. You have to choose. Let me, let me tell you about another very famous painting. It's worth tens of millions of dollars. It hangs in St. Paul's Cathedral in London, England. And, and you probably recognize it. It's, it's, it's Hunt Holman's painting called The Light of the World. Maybe you, you've seen this before. Light, Light of the World. It's very, very famous. Uh, it's a picture of, like, uh, of, of the Jesus character knocking at a cottage door. And, and if you could see the details of this, you would see that there's like all the, the, the cottage is worn down and, and, it's, and uh, it, it's not vibrant. It's not full of life. But the idea, a lot of people have called this painting by other names, like the knock at the door or Christ at the door. Um, but Holman said, that's not the name of the painting. He says, it is Christ, the light of the world. Because when Christ comes, there's light. Things change. Things come back to life when Christ comes. It's very, very interesting. And, and when Holman completed this picture and presented it to the art critics of his day, uh, one very knowledgeable art critic, one very observant art critic said, uh, he said, Mr. Hunt, uh, th th there's something wrong with your, your painting. What do you notice that's wrong with this painting? You notice anything? He's knocking at the door. But this art critic says, you've made a serious mistake, Mr. Hunt. You, you, you forgot to put a handle on the door. And Mr. Hunt says, I did not forget the handle. The handle's always on the inside when Christ comes. The handle of your door of your heart is on the inside of your life. You have to choose. You have to make the choice of where you're going to go and if you're going to let Christ into your life. Now, later I heard a story about a, a father and a young daughter who came and they were touring the cathedral and they were looking at the great works of art and they came to this, this photo and this young girl uh, uh, is observing this with her father and the father says to the young girl, what do you think this means? What is this all about? And so they sit there as the story goes, five minutes and 10 minutes and then 15 and even 20 minutes pass and finally, the little girl doesn't have an answer to the question, but she has a different question. She's looking at Jesus knock at the door, and she says to her dad, Daddy, did they ever open the door? Did they ever open the door? See, so many of us, we're going to come to church a whole bunch in our life. And we're going to hear a whole bunch about God and Jesus and all of that. We're going to know about the Bible. And some of us are even going to feel spiritual at different times in our life. 
And all of that will fall flat in your life and in my life if we refuse to open the door to Jesus, to Christ. It is your choice. So in the book of Revelation, it's a story, if you read into the Bible, Revelation is this book that depicts the coming end of mankind, right? And uh, there's this very interesting verse. And it's, and it's Jesus' words to us. And he says, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. I stand at the door of the heart of your heart and I knock. And let me tell you something, you know, I'm guessing, I don't know you, but I know that he has knocked in your life before. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was like one of those accidents where you thought you were going to die and you can't even explain it, but woo, you somehow walked away unscathed. I don't know. Or maybe it was a time when you were in like deep trouble, deep depression, deep hurt, deep pain, deep regret, and there was somehow a peace inside of you. Maybe it was when you had done something wrong and there was this conviction inside of you that drove you to another way to think about God and you didn't quite get there. But there has been times that God has knocked on your heart's door. And I don't understand why you don't open it. God wants a relationship with you through his son, Jesus. And I think if you were to quiet your soul, you would hear this knock. I do. I think you would hear it. And it would be louder than you think. It would be closer than you think. And so I'm just saying to you, the choice is yours. God has already moved toward you. Respond to him. Can I lead us in prayer? So Father, we come before you and uh, just take a moment to have reflection over busyness. God, I, I pray that your spirit would speak into this room right now. God, every one of our lives, we're so different and we have so many things going on and we have so many experiences. And, but God, you, but you want to cut through all of that and you want to do life with us. And so maybe in this room right now, God's spirit is speaking to you. I don't know, but maybe he is. And I'm just going to lead us in some sort of prayer. And if you want to say these words in your heart, out loud, I don't care if you stand on your head, it doesn't matter to me. But, but God hears your heart. He knows your thoughts. And I just want to lead you into this because this might be the opportunity for you to get it right with God. So might, you might want to say, dear God, dear, dear Jesus. That sounds so childish, doesn't it? Dear Jesus. But he is dear to your heart. He is near to you. And you might need to say, dear God, I come before you and I admit that I am distant from you. I'm like Adam who hid in the garden. And I know I've done wrong and I know I've screwed up so much in my life. But I can hear your knock. I can hear that you are present and that you are near. 
So, so God, please forgive my sin through Jesus. I accept Jesus' pardon. I accept his gift on the cross toward me. He paid for my sin. I know that, that wrong things in this world need to be made right. I know that. But you made it right for me. Amen. And I thank you for that. And Jesus, I'm tired of hearing about you. I want to live with you. So I acknowledge you as the son of God come to, made, to, made, uh, to, to live inside of me. So I accept you. God, I ask you to take up residence inside of me. And God, I don't know a lot about you, but I want to follow you. God, I'm going to try to follow you. And so I need your spirit to guide me. I need your spirit to grow me, to change me, to mature me. God, I'm struggling with all kinds of things, and I, and I want to be done with those struggles. Help me, God. Help me. Help me. Jesus, I pray that your grace would be over one and all in this room. And my brothers and sisters, I pray that you would know the grace of God, that you would feel it, that you would experience it, that you would know it, that you would choose to walk in it. God, may your spirit speak to each one. In Jesus' name, together we say, amen, amen. amen. Y'all good? Amen.